Hello and how are you? I hope you are having a great day, whatever the day is. It's Friday. Usually I do this on Saturday mornings. It's Friday morning. Got to do it a day early this week. Two words, college football. Got a big game I want to watch. It's just on TV tomorrow at noon. I got to be ready for that. I can't be worrying about a podcast and, and distracted by that football game. So we're going a day early. As always, uh, I'm glad to have you uh, with me for this next 15 or 20 minutes. We call this The Well. We come here, we exchange ideas, and we drink from the life-giving water or the living water that is Jesus. Uh, we talk about how to live wisely, and that's a huge word, how to live wisely and faithfully in this awesome, wonderful world that is broken and fallen and can be very challenging. I like to ask questions as we get started on these podcasts. I ask two or three, maybe four questions every Sunday that I preach, questions are powerful. This has nothing to do with the podcast, but I saw a recent study released about questions. Did you know that the average child asks 125 questions every day? So when we're children, we're asking questions all the time. Well, you know, where are we going? When will we get there? Why is the sky blue? Questions. When we become adults, we ask only six questions every day. Somewhere between childhood and adulthood, we lose 119 questions every single day. And so I think questions are powerful, and that's why I like to ask them. And so I want to start with a question for us to ponder today, and that's simply, what do you lack? Think about that. What do you lack in your life? I've asked that question and heard the answers for a lot of years. And it seems to me that there are kind of three big categories the answers fall into, certainly as adults. One category is related to our health. What do you lack? I lack mobility. I need a new knee. I can't get around like I used to. I lack good eyesight. I can't drive at night any longer. I lack fine motor skills. I've got arthritis in my hands. I, I can't sew or knit or play golf any longer. We, we tend to say we are lacking in our physical lives. Another category that I often hear is financial. I'm lacking funds to pay my bills. I am lacking money to retire. I am lacking savings. I cannot pay for my child's education. I am lacking discretionary income. We just look at our financial life and we say, I'm lacking here. And then the third big category that we say we are lacking in, I call lifestyle. I don't have time to do the things I want to do. That's a lifestyle thing. I don't have flexibility to do the things I'd like to do. That's certainly one of the things that I lack. I mean, I, you know, I work almost every weekend. You know, a lot of fun things happen on the weekends. A lot of really fun things happen on Saturday nights. I, I don't have the flexibility to participate in those things. This coming Saturday, the University of Kentucky is playing the University of Florida in Lexington, which is about two hours south of where I am seated here at this very moment. In football, I would love to go to that game, but it doesn't start till 7 o'clock. won't be over till 10, 30, or 11. And then you got to get out of the parking lot, you got to get home, and I got to be up bright and early, 5 6 o'clock on Sunday morning. I do not have the flexibility to do that. My lifestyle lacks that. Some of us say I, I lack free time, and you can just fill in the blanks. But when we think about what it is that we lack, often we lump our responses into those three categories health, finances, and lifestyle. So let me kind of shift gears and ask what it is that you lack spiritually. What do you need in your spiritual life? The people of faith have been asking this for, for many, many years and going to God and saying, God, here's what I lack. I lack power, strength, 
patience. I need you to protect me. I need for it to rain. I need for a military victory. You, you read the Old Testament and you see over and over again, these are some of the responses. And so what do you like? The writer of Hebrews, and we're, we're studying Hebrews again, and we're in chapter 2 today. If you don't have a Bible, no biggie. I'll, I'll read the text to you. The writer of Hebrews is dealing with people who are, who are tempted to leave their relationship with God in Christ because they are focused on what they are lacking in life. And they do not look to Christ as the source for providing what they lack spiritually. And the writer is trying to say, he's everything you need. And I know that sounds sort of simplistic. You know, just if you just have Christ in your life, you've got everything you need. You may still be lacking in the health area, the finance area, and the lifestyle area. If you have Christ in your life, you are not lacking spiritually. He is everything we need. And he paints these four pictures of Jesus or gives us these four snapshots of Christ in this text. And so we're going to look at these four snapshots. Before we do, I want to just start reading some passages to you, though, from chapter 2. Because he begins by saying, listen, a lot of you are looking elsewhere for what you're lacking. And so in verse 5 of chapter 2, he writes, It's not the angels that God has subjected the world to come. And of course, we think, all right, what does that have to do with me? I mean, who cares about angels? Who thinks about angels? Uh, in, in that day, there were some in the church who worshipped angels, who elevated them to a higher status than they were given by God. And so there was a, a heresy in the church about worshipping angels. If you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, you probably are familiar with them. Don't want to go into it right now, but the people who authored and protected the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a hint that they were engaging in angel worship. And so what the author is saying here is, listen, if you think you're lacking spiritually, it's not about worshiping angels. Now, how do we apply that to our lives right now? Again, I don't know of anybody who's really worshiping angels, but what I think we have elevated to an exalted position of worship is self. I mean, how many of us essentially worship the self? I mean, that is our idol. And when we do, uh, we relegate God to second-class citizenship. You see, what, what biblical faith does is elevate God to who God is. There was a crazy great book written I'm almost 70 years ago now by an author named J.B. Phillips. And the title of the book is Your God is Too Small. I love that. Your God's too small. And what he says in the book, or writes, is that Many of us think that our lives and our world are just too complicated for God because God just can't handle all that. I mean, after all, God created the world and he's kind of done with it. We, that's a shrinking God. Or we believe that God doesn't have the ability to help us as individuals. We have made God smaller. We have reduced God in size. This is what I believe Martin Luther, the great reformer, had in mind when he said to a rival, your thoughts about God are far too human. And many of us have done that. We have reduced the size of God. We have made God small as are we. Just let me read a couple of passages from the Old Testament and just kind of let these wash over you and think about the greatness of our God. These are passages from Isaiah chapter 40. God says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked the heavens. 
Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who has instructed God or been God's counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Isn't that incredible? They are regarded as dust on the scales. So in the, in the Old Testament days, scales measure the weight of grain or of precious metal. And, and God is saying, these, these nations of the world, these great empires, they're just like dust on a scale. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you put your vegetables in one of those little bags. The bag doesn't weigh anything. It's like dust on the scale. That's what God is saying. The nations of the world are like that to me. He goes on and says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. One more thing. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Says the Holy One. God is great. God is vast. Often we reduce God and we shrink God. And in doing so, we start to say, God cannot provide for what I lack spiritually. God cannot do that. God is not able. God is not interested or whatever the case may be. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, God can indeed provide everything that you lack. And so let's just kind of dig in. First of all, he says, Jesus was both human and divine. So we, we cannot shrink Jesus into just being some kind of ghost, some kind of divine ghost. We cannot shrink Jesus into being just some, some kind of great human being, some uh, one who is an elevated uh, image of a human being, but still a human. Jesus was fully God, and he was also fully human. Uh, verse 17 of Hebrews. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way. In other words, in every way he had to be made human. He is completely human. And as both human and God, in chapter 1 we talk we read where the writer of Hebrews says, hey, Jesus was there at creation. So he is divine. He's also human. It seems to me that in the early church, there was the belief that Jesus was just divine. And that was not hard for them. They were accustomed to angels and other um, supernatural experiences of the divine. But they had trouble with thinking that he was actually a human being. He couldn't do the things he did if he were human. In, in today's world, it seems the, the script has been flipped. And now it's, it's really not even arguable that he was human. I mean, you look at secular historians, there, there was a Jesus of Nazareth who was indeed crucified at the hands of the Roman Empire. That, that's, that's just fact. But many in our culture today say, but he was not divine in any way. He was just a great prophet. He was a great human being. And immediately the author of Hebrews wants you and me to know he was both fully human, 100%, and fully divine. Now, that explodes our minds. We cannot even comprehend what that looks like. We just have to understand that that is the biblical faith that we've been given, and that's just who he was. And there are things that we cannot understand. Do you not remember what we just read in chapter 40 of Isaiah? Who's God's counselor? Who's the one who measured out the oceans? Who's the one who measured out the mountains? Who's the one who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth? It is God. And so we, we, we make a mistake when we reduce God into, the image of a, in, into our own human image, right? God is greater than that. And God wants to provide everything that you and I lack spiritually. 
four pictures. We're just going to roll through them, not spend a lot of time with them, but food for thought as to who he wants to be in your life. The very first picture is in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I highlighted the word crowned. When you think of a crown, what do you think about? A king, a queen, a ruler, someone in authority, someone who is all-powerful. For many of us, the image of a king is negative, but one who's aloof and abusive and above us. But what we see in Christ is a king who actually suffered and died for his people, gave his life for his people. The image that the writer wants us to take with, with us spiritually is that God wants to be the authority in our life, and he can do that. He wants to be the ruler and the guide in our life. He wants to be the power in our life. He has a will for our life, just as a king would have a will for the kingdom. But he's not a king who's just above us. He's a king who literally gave his life for you and me. And so if you and I find that we are lacking power in our life and direction and guidance in our life, we've got a king. We need to bear that in mind. Well, the next thing he says, we move on to verse 10, shall we? In bringing many children to glory... It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author, there's that word, we'll get back to it, the author of their salvation, perfect through suffering. So he is our king. He is also the author of our salvation. He's the captain of our salvation. Another word for this is he is our champion. In biblical times, disputes between rulers or armies were settled by sending a representative of the ruler or a representative of the army to do battle with another representative of the other ruler or army. Think David and Goliath. David was selected to represent the king and the people in battle against Goliath, who was representing the Philistines. And David became their champion. He won the victory for them. What we are hearing here is that Christ is our champion. He has won the victory for us. He has won our salvation. And, and the writer goes on to say, he has conquered our fear of death. So what's your greatest fear in life? What he says in this particular passage is that many of us fear death. Some of us fear missing out, FOMO, whatever the case may be. But for those of us who fear death, Jesus has won the victory. He is our champion over death. I asked a class I was teaching this past week, do you fear death? And most of us said we don't really fear death. We fear how it might happen. We fear that it might hurt and be really uncomfortable. I remember reading someone who said once, if I knew where I was going to die, I would just never go to that place. But the truth is we don't know where we're going to die or when we're going to die. And so we are often kind of fearful of that. Our champion has taken that fear away. I mean, I have friends right now who are in heaven who one day I will laugh and carry on with. I mean, I have a friend who died young. One day I will see her fully grown in her adult spiritual body. Jesus is my champion. He has won that. And so if we fight, feel we are lacking a champion in life, we have that in Christ, spiritually. Another image that is used. Both the one who makes humans holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers 
and sisters. So he is our king. He is our champion. He's also our brother. Have you ever had a family member that you're kind of embarrassed by? I mean, we all have. When you were young, were you ever embarrassed by your parents? I think I embarrassed my son, who's now in his early 20s, a lot. Because I was just kind of around a lot. I remember I, we had this thing where in our family, before we say goodbye, we say, I love you. Love you. Love you, buddy. Say it to my wife. Love you, honey. And I remember I was dropping my son off at a high school football game. He was probably 14 years old. He was with a bunch of his friends, and I dropped him off and leaned out the car door and said, love you, buddy. And they all looked at him, and they looked at me, and he looked at me, and he kind of mumbled, love you back, but he was, he was really embarrassed. Jesus is not, is not embarrassed to call you and me members of his family. He should be embarrassed. I would be embarrassed if I were the God of the universe to say, this crazy, goofy human being is my brother, but he's not. He is our ideal, and I want to say elder brother. What does an ideal brother, elder brother do? He's a protector if you're being bullied or if you're uh, a young girl and, and some guy's trying to take advantage of you. He's our provider. If something happens in the family, we can trust that he's going to come through. He's our example. If you and I are lacking those elements in our spiritual life, that's what God does. And that's who God is. And then one more thing we read, and that's found in Hebrews 17 and 18. He has become our merciful and faithful high priest in service to God because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those of us who are being tempted. And I don't want to get too deep into the notion he's our priest because we got a whole podcast down the road we're going to do with that. But what I do want to focus on is the fact that because he was tempted, he understands what it's like to be a human being. Think about all the things that Jesus suffered in his life. Think about his humanity. Remember, he was fully God, fully human. He got tired. He got angry. He was disappointed. He cried when a friend of his died. He was forsaken. He was lonely. He was hungry. All these things. He knows what it's like to be you. What does that do to your heart to know that God identifies with your life and with my life when we go through all these terrible things because Jesus experienced the full range of humanity? That's why support groups are so powerful. Support groups are powerful because we're around people who know what it's like to be us. We're around people who are going through the very same things that you and I are going through, and there's power in that. And so the author of Hebrews says, hey, know this, God understands. Think about these incredible pictures we have of Christ. He provides everything we lack. He's our king. He guides us. He's the authority in our life. He's also... Our brother, as we said, he, he, he protects us. He's our example. He's our champion. He has won the victory for us because we are weak human beings and he understands us because he's been there before. What more could God possibly provide? So what do you lack in your life spiritually? Understand that, yeah, we've got some things we lack physically, financially, lifestyle-wise, but spiritually, God wants to provide for your and my every need. There you go, the well, food for thought. I hope the rest of your day and week is awesome, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Bye now.